Sometimes the most dangerous things in life are the things you can't see. In this sermon series from Table Church, we're identifying some of those invisible enemies that want to take away your joy. Things like narcissism, greed, and isolation. So join us as we learn how to combat these enemies of the soul. And as always, feel free to reach out to us at tablechurchdsm.org. Thanks for listening. Wow, it is cool to be here today. Uh, I have been praying and dreaming and uh, hoping for what would become in Des Moines and, and now to see what has been birthed and, and to hear about what you're doing in the community and just to hear Pastor Phil's joy about you all and what's going on here. This is just, this is so rewarding to, to kind of see uh, where you're at in your journey and uh, I don't know if you know this, you probably do, but you have one of the absolute best lead pastors in like the world, but for sure our district. I have the privilege of supervising, I don't know, 115, 120 churches over the, all those states he mentioned, and that'd be 300 pastors perhaps, and you just have one of the absolute best, and your team, phenomenal team I'm getting to know. So... So keep it up. I just, future is really bright, and, and particularly because of the way you, you have this incredible passion about your community and, and uh, clearly are, are just, you're, you're creative and competent in the way you connect and welcome people. And if you're, I, I think there, if you're newish here, I think you get that, that, that just immediately. I have today. It's just been fantastic. So, so keep it up. I'm so excited about what's going on. And uh, literally, it, I was thinking earlier this morning, like if I could pick one of the churches on our region that I could personally attend every week, this would be super high on my list. You, you seem to have just a, a real depth to the way you're experiencing God. And I'm just, ah, his presence is here. And it's a, it's a privilege to be here with him and with you. So your pastor gave me the enormous privilege today to teach from God's word. And as I thought and prayed about that, I wanted to share something that has been real deep in my spiritual journey, my family's spiritual journey over the last years. Uh, and, and it's a little bit unique in terms of a teaching and especially the way that we're going to do it. We're going to take a story, perhaps... If you've been to church much in your life, you may have heard the story of Job. Or just, just in our culture, there's some references about the story of Job. And I, I think it's one of those stories that we, 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 we understand such a limited part of the truth of Job that we miss the magic of, of meeting a God who is incredible. And so I hope to open that up maybe a little bit for you, the way my mentor and, 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 and subsequently God has opened it up to me and really changed my life and the life of our family. So we're going to do that. But to do that, I'm going to read through and tell portions of the story because if we, if we if we read the entire story of Job, we'd, we'd be here till Tuesday, and nobody wants that. So what we're going to do is just do a little bit of that, and then we're going to stop at the end and dig in a little deeper and spend some time. By then, hopefully, we're all on the same page and understanding the story. So, so go with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read parts of the story and, and fill in the gaps as we go. Uh, some of you are going to be following along maybe. Uh, normally, I would teach from a phone or an iPad or something, so maybe you brought that or you, or you brought the, the text that you read from. Uh, so, so I'll give you some references as we go, but I'll be going quick just, just for the sake of time. It starts this way. 
In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they'd invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and, and and, and have them purified. Early in the morning, he'd, he'd, he'd offer a burnt sacrifice for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. I read that introduction because I, I, I understand as, as this story is told, it's, it's meant to communicate something that would be very familiar in Job's culture in Job's day. It's meant to communicate the following. There's a man named Job. He lives a really righteous life. He does all the right things. If there's a feast and he thinks one of his family may have, may have somehow done something wrong or sinned, he offers burnt offering and sacrifice to God. He, just, he does everything he can to stay on God's good side. And consequently, it would seem, it's the way the story is told, consequently, he's really, really rich. Like he's blessed. He has, and it lists all of these animals, which in Job's day, in his agricultural community, this would be a really big deal. And then it says, in addition to that, he has seven sons and three daughters. He's got ten kids, which I don't know how blessed that is, to be honest with you, but that's the idea, right? That's the idea. I have three, and I feel blessed, but I don't know if, I don't know if ten I'd feel all that blessed. But the idea here is, really good person, like, boy, that guy gets it right when it comes to, like, obeying and honoring God. And really blessed. That's the idea. And, and it was in Job's day, this, this, this true but ancient story is told to us in a day, when it was believed about God that if you were good, God was good to you. And if you were not, he was not. And it was this quid pro quo kind of relationship. And that's who God was. And that's how the world worked. I mention that because it's not just in Job's day that this is, this is lived out this way, right? So I'll come back to that in a minute. But that's the story as it begins. But you may know the story because it says one day there's a conversation between Satan and God. And God says, have you noticed my servant Job, how righteously he lives? And Satan says this, chapter 1, verse 9, Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? The, the accusation here is, of course, he's a righteous guy. You give him everything, right? He's super blessed. He's the greatest in the East, whatever that exactly means, right? He's rich. He's blessed. Of course, anybody would love you. You're like a celestial Santa Claus, right? I know Santa Claus hadn't been invented when Job was written, but that's the idea, right? He's saying, of course, he loves you. That's the idea. But, but, if you, if you stop blessing his life, and you let me do stuff, take stuff away, he'll curse you. He'll curse you. And God says, oh, I don't think so. Now, this is not just about a little contest to see what will happen in Job's life. This is actually a cosmic trial, if you will, because for thousands of years, human beings will live, and sometimes we're, we live blessed, and sometimes we do not. And Satan is saying, the only 
point of honoring and worshiping a God and, and, and having a relationship has to do with just blessing and cursing. There's nothing beyond that. There's nothing beyond that. He's accusing you and I of being incapable of loving a God who might allow things that we don't always understand. And this story now will serve all of us for generations as we walk through. Is God, are we okay with the God that allows trouble? Will, will, will we be okay with the God that does some things we don't understand? And so he gives Satan permission to go do some stuff to Job. Now, if you know the story, lots of crops are destroyed, animals are, are, are killed in one calamity or another, and the, and, and, and the climax of that whole first scene, if you will, is Job's children die in a catastrophic accident. Home collapses on them. One, one uh, non-family member escapes and rushes to Job and says, all your children are dead. And he weeps and he mourns and, and, and there's this whole like tragic thing in their family. But at the end of all that, at the end of all that, you, you'll read this. It says, in, in all this, Job did not sin with charging God with wrongdoing. At the end of all that process, and it took some time, Job does not curse God. Job does not charge God with wrongdoing. And so Satan and God are in chapter 2 in another conversation. And Satan says, sure, okay. Took all of his stuff. But he says, skin for skin. You let me go after his body. You let me go after him personally. And then he'll curse God. And so Satan goes out and afflicts Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. It says, Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife comes to him and says, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. When your wife tells you to curse God and die, you've had a bad run. Just, you've had a bad run, right? And so, uh, he, he, but, but, but he replies and says, no, no. So shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And it says, in all this, Job did not sin, but it adds this qualifier. It says, Job did not sin in what he said. He is now starting to wrestle with a God he not, he's not sure he loves. A God who, as he says to his wife, who brings or allows not just good, but trouble. So in this moment, he doesn't curse God with what he says, but he's starting to think some things. And it says, he, he does what they typically do in mourning. They, 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 they tear their clothes. They, they sit in sackcloth and ashes. They shave their head, which in our day is just a sign of being really cool. But in Job's day, it's more like a, a time of mourning. And that's where he is. And in that state, it says that he has, that, that he has some friends that come. In chapter 2, it says, when Job's three friends... Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, and Dadgum the Termite. When they come, some of you are listening, uh, Dadgum, Dadgum did not come. Okay, that's just something, just, just stay with me in the story. But when these three friends come, it says, uh, they saw him a long ways away from their homes, 
And from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for over seven days and seven nights. This is the Jewish culture. This is called setting Shiva. And this would be, in Job's day, a regular custom when somebody had lost loved ones or whatever in their mourning. Friends would just come and sit with you in silence for seven days and seven nights. And it, it apparently has this tremendous impact in terms of restorative health. And so it's been a custom for a long, long time. And they do this, and if they had just stopped there, the story of Job would likely have been much different. But these three friends are a lot like probably some of us, right, me included. We have trouble in these moments not offering advice, right? Like it, it's, 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 it's hard to sit with somebody and just be with them and love them and but, but not offer input. And these three friends start offering input to Job, and they get it wrong, and it causes an argument. Let's read, let's read some of their advice. We, we won't take time to read all of it, but I, I want to summarize these three friends' advice. In chapter 4, Eliphaz says this. Uh, he says, Consider who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I observed, those who plow evil... Those who plow evil and those who sow trouble, they, they reap it. So here's the argument. Like, Job, you had it coming. Uh, the way the world works is when you sin, God brings pain. That's the way the world works. And so you need to, in this moment, confess and open up about your secret sin. Job responds to say... I don't think so. Like, he doesn't claim to be perfect, but he says, there's no, there's no thing I've just done that would have caused all of this to happen. So, and, the, and, and they go back and forth. Well, so hearing that, Bildad, one of the others, right? Bildad says, Job, in chapter 8, if you're following along, he says, Job, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against them, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Like your kids had it coming, Job. God's, God's a just God, and your kids had it coming. And if you're a parent and, you're, and you've ever had your kids accused wrongly of, of, of something, you know the visceral reaction you have in that moment, and Job has that. Like if you want to read about Job cursing out his friends, read after chapter I mean, He just goes ballistic. And it basically says... In so many words, I don't think so. They did not. Okay, so hearing all of that, uh, the, the, the last summary I'll give is over in chapter 11 with Zophar. Zophar says, Job, Job, uh, if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, this is 13 through 15, the verses 13 through 15, Zophar says, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent... Then you'll lift up your face without shame. You'll stand firm without fear. If you'll just say it out loud, if you'll just repent of your sin, Job. And again, Job just, he's had enough. And, and if you wonder if this is a real story with real people, listen to Job's response to his three friends. He says, doubtless you are the people and wisdom will die with you. When you three die, nobody smart will be alive having heard all of your advice. And he's just sarcastic and cynical and frustrated. He says, I have a mind as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who doesn't know these things? I've heard this same stuff before. I've heard about a God 
who doesn't treat us wrong unless we sin, and if we don't treat us really good. I've heard that. Like, I know this way of living. I've, but it's just, it's, my experience is, it's not true. It's not true. I was living right, and bad stuff still happened. You've got to understand I've heard the same things as you. I know God's that way. I know the world works this way. But that's not my experience, guys. And, and so they go back and forth. But, but mostly as you walk through the journey of Job, here, here's, here's what he'll say. And, and, and this is the crux of it. In chapter 19, he says to them, How long will you crush me with words? Ten times now you've reproached me. If it is true I've gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. But I want to say this. Though I've cried, I've been wronged, and I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way, so I cannot pass. Job says, I want to tell you this. Here's my conclusion. God is at fault. He has wronged me. I'm going to be really clear about that. This is the first time he comes out in the open to say this, and that's why I read it. God, he, he, Job says, okay, I've had enough. I'm, I've heard all the same things you have, and I've got to tell you right now, God has wronged me. He's at fault. And, and it's interesting, he, he, as a human being, his emotions are all over the map, because if you continue to read in, in, in chapter 19, he also says, my breath is offensive to my wife. In spite, and, and, and in addition to all my other problems, I have bad breath. Right? You ever, you ever been in a bad moment where you're like, this is horrible, and you're talking about some cosmic treason, and then you also have this other thing that's irritating you. And, and, and also, my wife says I have bad breath. Like, literally, that's what he says. So this is a real story with the real man, and he's all over the place, all over it with his emotions, okay? Chapter 23. He says, even today my complaint is bitter. His hand, God, God's hand is heavy on me in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with argument. This is Job's way, and this is how they would do this in Job's day, of, of commencing a lawsuit. So what Job is essentially saying is I want to sue God. I want to schedule a court date, I want to bring him up for trial, and I want to sue him because I have been wronged, and, and, and he, needs, he needs to be accountable for his wrong actions. Well, if you continue to read the, the three friends, I mean, they go ballistic. You can't sue God. You don't even want to say that. You're, you know, he's going to kill you and all of us, and there's, there's this back and forth, right? And... Interestingly, in chapter 38, as we near the end of the story, as God apparently is listening to their back and forth, God does show up. And now, for the next quite a, you know, what, what we divide up into about three and a half chapters of the story, God's going to speak and they're going to listen. So if you're ready for that, let me read some of what God has to say. It says it starts this way says, the Lord answered Job out of the storm. That's kind of cool. Wouldn't it be cool if every time you spoke, you could create a storm first, right? It kind of make it kind of bad, but it had to be kind of a dramatic moment. And there's this storm, and then God starts to speak and listen to what he says. He says, uh, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? 
Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know, Job. Who I added the word Job. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or where were its footings set? So here's where... The un, here's where how we typically understand Job kind of comes from. Because God is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You want to sue? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Remember, remember the difference between what I understand and what you understand. Let's, I want you to acknowledge that. Wait, 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 wait. There's so much you don't know about your story and about everything, like you, 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 Pastor Phil talked about, you know, God holds this whole thing in the palm of his hand, and we rely on him for our very breath, and there's just this massive cosmic gap between our understanding and God's, and God is pointing that out. And often the story of Job is presented as, uh, yeah, Job, you're going through hard stuff, but, but, but you don't understand, I understand, let it go. But that, that is not at the crux of the whole response that God has. And I want to read some more to you because God introduces himself. And when God is done introducing himself, everything changes for Job. God doesn't specifically answer the question about why this happened to him. But when God's done introducing himself... Job is changed. Listen, listen to some of how God introduces himself. And I'm just going to pick uh, a, few, a few of the, the ways God does it because it's just, you should read it sometime. It's amazing. But he asked Job some questions. For instance, in, in verse 25 of chapter 38, he says, Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no man lives? A desert with no one in it. He says, Job, I know you have this understanding of me and the way the world works. I want to ask you a question. Who sends rain uh, to a place where nobody lives and grass grows there? Now, to understand what this would mean to Job, the way Job's life worked as, as, as somebody who had livestock and needed grazing is he would pray and sacrifice for rain his belief was that because of all of that, God sent him rain and grass grew for him and his livestock ate and he thrived. That's, that was the belief of the day and that they would do all these things for rain. And God says, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. Who sends rain where nobody, nobody even needs it? Like just randomly sends rain to that area. Who does that? Well, it, it'd have to be you. Well, maybe God's different than you thought. Maybe he blesses and loves for no strategic quid pro quo kind of reason. He just does. And he keeps asking these kinds of questions. Let's go. Well, let's go to... Uh, this one's my favorite. Uh, chapter 39, uh, be verse 13. God says this. The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and the feathers of the stork. She, the ostrich, lays her eggs and, and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them. Some wild animal 
may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was not in vain. For God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at the horse and rider. Okay, so in Job's day, the ostrich was not considered a very valuable animal and was not cared for. It was fine in Job's day if it was gone extinct because they did not, they understood this, this animal, uh, not impressive is what they thought about the ostrich. And, 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 and God says, uh, Job, have you seen the ostrich? Dumbest animal ever made. That's why he said, I didn't endow her with any good sense or any wisdom. Have you seen the ostrich? And by the way, horrible mom. <laughs> right. Horrible mom. She lays her eggs right out in the open. She walks on them. She lets other animals walk. She doesn't care. Half the, it's amazing there is an ostrich, right? <laughs> Dumb and bad mom. I mean, just. Job, have you seen her run? Love to watch her run. Oh, I love to watch her run. You have these horse races. I built a bird that can outrun. I mean, she can run circles around your horse races. Love the ostrich. Now, to understand this, this would be shocking to Job and his three friends. This would be what? The almighty God loves watching ostriches run? And is excited about dumb birds that are horrible moms? Are you kidding? Let's go to another one. Uh, chapter 40 is just, uh, let's go, uh, let's look at the behemoth. Okay, let's look at the behemoth because this, this, this is great. So the behemoth in Job's day, we don't know exactly what it was. It would have been sort of like a rhinoceros in our day. Uh, some, it, it, the thing in Job's day that you got to know, though, is they hated the behemoth because the behemoth was, was this big, huge animal they could not train. They could not make it plow. They couldn't make it do anything. And it was huge, and it ate a lot. Like, it grazed and, and, and ate a lot. And they, try, they were trying to, like, make it extinct in Job's day. So God picks it out. And he says, uh, uh, look at the behemoth, which I made along with you. I made you and the behemoth, Job. He's making this point, right? And then he says, uh, it, it feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins. What power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar tree. It's oh, The sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like rods of iron. He ranks first among the works of God. Joe, have you seen the behemoth? I love the behemoth, right? Have you checked out a behemoth's loins lately? Wow! <coughs> love those loins. You, you imagine Job and his three friends hearing about the behemoth's loins, right? Like, what? What kind of God? Like, oh, and he said, bellies. Have you looked at his belly? The muscles in his belly. Wow! And he just goes on and on, to loving on the behemoth. And then he says what would be incredibly shocking. He says, Job, when I made the behemoth, I had my A game going that day. He ranks number one in my creation list. He's the best thing I did. Now, to us, like we, we've learned to love animals. And, you know, but in, for Job and his friends, this would be unbelievable. 
And God just keeps going on and on like that, talking about ways in which the maker of heaven and earth and you and me are loved by a God, not because of the fact that we can offer some strategic thing back with our sacrifices and righteousness, just because that's the kind of God he is. He loves ostriches, and he waters places where nobody sacrifices and asks for it. He talks about the wild donkey that can't be tamed. He just keeps going on and on and on. And when he's done, listen to Job's response. So we're in chapter 42, and Job's responds this way. He says, I know now that you can do all things and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen, and I'll, I'll speak. I'll question you, and you should answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Like, I, I'd heard about you, like, in small group, and maybe I grew up in Sunday schools. I'd heard some things about you, but wow, uh, you're different than I heard. I've met you now, and you are too wonderful for words to express and I repent of what I said. The, you, you, some of you have read from the message, which is Eugene Peterson's way of, of explaining the, the meaning of what's actually being said so that we can, we can get it real deeply. And, and I love the way he says Job's response here. I actually think it's going to be on the screen above me. Uh, I'm, I'm going to read it to you. He, Eugene says, really what he's saying is, he says, I admit I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand. I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. And I got to say, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll never do that again. I'll never again live on crusts of hearsay and crumbs of rumor. Now I've met you. And everything I'd heard before was just, it was rumors about you. It turned out it wasn't true. And, and, and it's so interesting what happens next when, when Job says this. Then God turns to his three friends. If you read the story and says, by the way, Eliphaz and everybody but dadgum, you know, he turns to him and he says, by the way, you were wrong. What advice you were giving was wrong. And if Job will pray for you, I'll forgive you. Now, if I were Job, I'd probably take like three months of some, some process, but Job immediately prays for him and God forgives them. And there's this moment. And then there's this epilogue in the story which we normally skip across, but you can't do it in this case because it's everything about this story. Let me read. It says, The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had, and it starts to list, 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. The first he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapak. Nowhere in all the world were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Okay, so you read this, and, and, and you can authentically conclude, yeah, God blesses the latter half, but you miss, you miss something. Because as, as Job writes this about his story, 
he does something that would have been more than shocking. It would have been scandalous in his day. What he does is he said, yeah, I had 10, I had 10 kids. I had, I had seven sons and three daughters. Now, in Job's day, thank God, not our day, but in Job's day, when you, when you had a son, you celebrated because that was going to increase your wealth tremendously. He was going to grow up, and he was going to marry, and whoever he married... Uh, with that daughter would come a large sum of, essentially a large sum of money that would come into your family that, the, that her household had to give your household. So you celebrated if you had a son, but if you had a daughter, it was very typical in Job's day for there to be great mourning, great sadness, because you might not survive financially. You were going to have to give all now or a bunch of your stuff to some other family when she married into that family. So daughters were not pointed out, not celebrated. You, didn't, you never knew about their names typically, all that stuff. Job, writing about how blessed he was at the end of his life, said, I had ten kids. I had seven sons and three daughters. And let me tell you about my daughters. They're awesome. My sons, I don't need to tell you their names. You don't need to know their names. They're just sons. But my daughters, let me tell you. And then he actually tells us their names, which again would be, what are you, in Job's day, what are you doing? And not only did he tell us their names, but what he named them. So the first one was Jemima, which meant dove. Now in Job's day, they took naming very seriously. And so you would typically name very serious religious names or something. Not Job. He's kind of lost his mind, to be honest. He says, uh, she reminds me of a beautiful dove. I want to name her Dove. She just reminds me of a dove. And he'd go to, you know, the water cooler or dinner parties. He said, I got to tell you about my daughter. I named her Dove. This would have been so scandalous. Like, what? You're a crazy guy. The second one, he names Keziah, which really means spice of cinnamon. Have you... Uh, have you met my second daughter? She's kind of spicy, and I love her. you got to meet her. She's awesome. The third one, he named Karen Hapak, which literally means horn of eyeshadow. Like, you're at Walmart, and you're, boy, I just had a daughter. She's incredibly beautiful. What am I going to name her? I don't know. Let's call her Maybelline, right? <laughs> oh, she's just great. He is... He is head over heels with these three girls, and he's celebrating them in wonderful and frivolous and creative ways that would have been so scandalous in his world, and he's loving every minute of it. He has just become this radically different person who loves for no strategic reason at all. It's just who he's become. And then the most scandalous part of the whole epilogue is this. He gave them an inheritance right along with the sons. You never did that. You're just going to give all that away. When she marries, you never do that, Job. That's just not a good financial move. Job's like, I don't care. They're awesome. They get every much as much as my sons get. See... See, here's, here's the point. 
when, when you meet God as he really is, not maybe the God you heard about, not the God that, that is this cosmic distant, distant being who like, if you learn to live really, really well, will bless your life. Not that, not that. If you meet the God who created you, who dances because of you, says he really does that. Who loves you, not because you're so great at anything that you bring value. No, no, just because he loves you. In ways that we can't even understand, it's so amazing. It's so big, it's so intense. When you meet that God, the God who sent his only son to just sacrifice himself on your behalf, when you meet that God, and you, you it just changes you. You, you. you start to love people not because of what they do back or the way they can love you back or their strategic value or that they agree. You start to love people for no reason at all. It's just love. It's just who you become. And this is Job, because Job met God. And he says, you're too wonderful for even worse to describe. So all of my pain, you can be trusted with that. I don't understand that, but I know who you are, and it's enough for me. So I want to pray for you. And I want to pray for you as a church. daily and weekly you would be meeting this God and that daily and weekly you would be transformed by his love and that daily and weekly this would be a place where people can meet the one true God because when they meet the one true God everything changes it's all transformed Father in heaven every now and then I get a chance again to just experience your love and I know so deeply that it has nothing to do with my goodness because it is so weak I rank somewhere right there with the ostrich I think and yet turns out you love ostriches so you know I, wow So now help me, help us. It's so easy to love the people who really do a good job of loving us back, who we agree with, who we feel honored by, all that. But we serve a God who, who, who the text says loved us while we were yet sinners. Yeah, yeah, that's me. So help us to become the kind of people that leads with that. And Father, I pray for Table Church that you would continue to help it become the kind of a place and be the kind of a place who loves its community, not because it's a great community or not because there's strategic, valuable 
stuff going on. No, no, no. Love's because, because that's who we are. We love people. And we want the best for people who you created, who Jesus died on the cross for. We love for no strategic reason. For our sake, we love them for their sake. Help us. Help us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.